Welcome to this Jungian life. Three good friends and Jungian analysts, Lisa Marciano, Deborah Stewart, and Joseph Lee, invite you to join them for an intimate and honest conversation that brings a psychological perspective to important issues of the day. I'm Lisa Marciano, and I'm a Jungian analyst in Philadelphia. I'm Joseph Lee, and I'm a Jungian analyst in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm Deborah Stewart, a Jungian analyst on Cape Cod. Hello, this Jungian Life listeners, this is Lisa Martiano, and I want to let you know that I've had a couple of spots open up in my women's fairy tale and yoga retreat that will be held in central Pennsylvania the last weekend of September. The weather should be gorgeous. We might get a little early fall color. Uh, we do yoga outside when it's warm enough at this beautiful platform down by the river, and we spend a couple of hours every day working through these fairy tales that is just so rich, and it's always an incredible group of women. We have um, uh, fires at night where we uh, do all kinds of crazy stuff. So uh, I hope you'll consider coming. If you want to check it out, you can learn more by going to lisamarciano.com and click on Wellspring Women's Retreat. So hopefully I'll see a few of you there. Bye. Today we're going to talk about a rather mysterious topic that Jung wrote about inspired particularly by his studies of ancient cultures. He called it loss of soul. As we are circumambulating the idea, we're trying to understand what this might have meant thousands of years ago to ancient peoples, but also Jung felt it was something that still occurred, that he observed in his patients in the Burkholzli And then as his understanding deepened, he began to be concerned that this is something that's happening more frequently than we realize. Loss of soul is, in a sense, an alienation of the individual from their own psychic experience. This could be caused by trauma. Jung felt sometimes it was caused by an invasion of the collective into the individual's psyche. And perhaps it occurs more subtly in other circumstances, which we'll talk about today. And before we dive into this topic, I just want to do what I often do on the podcast, which is to remind you all about Dream School. Dream School is our 12-month self-paced online program that teaches you how to work with your dreams the same way that we work with listeners' dreams on the podcast. So dream work is truly transformational. We've seen it change our lives. We've seen it change the lives of the people we work with. And we wanted to give you all that gift of being able to work with your dreams. So check out on our website, thisunionlife.com, and you'll see a button right there, uh, learn more about dream school. So hope you'll take a look. Uh-huh. So this interruption of our relationship to the individual self and the invasion of collective ideas, images, agendas is something that we actually have been talking about with great intensity for the last several years (laughs) with the growth of social media, 
hmm. with the incredible intensity of people living in an echo chamber and being pulled into these collective values that can so powerfully invade their ability to make their own unique choice about mm. something. Mm-hmm. You know, what um, I want to do a little bit is to kind of frame what we mean by loss of soul uh, from from a kind of Jungian uh, psychic structure perspective. Uh, for, for, for Jung, the structure of the psyche was that we have an ego, which is our sense of self, our sense of I, me. Uh, and right underneath that is a layer that he called the personal unconscious, uh, which is very much um, our own memories and experiences, emotional experience, highly flavored and highly conditioned by how you grew up or how I grew up and what happened. And at a deeper layer uh, of the psyche, there was what he called the collective unconscious, which is universal, uh, that uh, just as we have uh, evolved physically over time, uh, but retain, uh, you know, our basic physiological structures from ancient times. So um, our psychic experience has been recorded, and and we kind of know that. And we come uh, with all of those kinds of associations uh, and the mythological strata that we that we all have in common. And for Jung, loss of soul. Uh, was related to uh, injuries to the personal unconscious. And so in a way, it's a kind of optimistic uh, way of framing uh, a sense of uh, dis-ease, uh, usually marked especially by a sense of, of ha- nobody's home, a sense of emptiness, incompleteness. You know, I get it, but I just don't connect with it. Uh, and I think, of course, that's what we do every day in psychotherapy is to try to help people retrieve uh, what we're talking about today is parts of your soul uh, that are uh, obtainable, retrievable, uh, and you can reconnect with them. You know, um, Deb, what, what I was thinking about when you were speaking was uh, the fact that our notions, our models of psychological distress, the way that we as uh, any particular culture understand things like, let's say, depression, they really are kind of little cosmologies or mythologies. And we have a kind of mythology about mental distress, that it's caused by kind of biochemical issues in the brain, uh, we have other mythologies too. I don't think we have a kind of unitary one. But this idea about a loss of soul is a metaphor that has been extremely widespread. I was just doing a little bit of research and the cultures that have believed in soul loss and soul mm-hmm. retrieval are spread really widely across the globe. And, uh, and so it is, I mean, you use the word optimistic and the idea of soul loss and soul retrieval, which was usually the job of a shaman, it 
it is optimistic because it says mm-hmm. this can be reclaimed. Yes. And I and I do think we see that in our consulting rooms. So um, some of the vestiges of this idea of soul retrieval um, came forward particularly in the United States in the 1980s when Michael Harner published his book, The Way of the Shaman, which rose out of his graduate studies that he was particularly interested in shamanic practices and shamanic healing. And one of the things that he noticed is that across many different cultures, there seem to be similarities of belief and even similarities of technique. Hmm. And so as he began to experiment with this, he felt that some of the cultural nuances that were specific to the various tribes could actually be filtered out and the techniques could stand alone. So Hmm. for him, shamanism involved um, things like rhythmic drumming, as a way to fall into a somnambulant state or a a light hypnosis. There were various visualizations that were helpful um, in order to access various internal states. But a central belief, as you were saying, Lisa, is that things can happen to the individual that cause the soul itself or a part of the soul to retreat into one of these inner worlds and to reside there. Mm -hmm. One of the duties of the shaman, or in this case, uh, even modern folks who are studying that technique, is to be able to go into this altered state and then, with the help of the power animal, try to find the missing part of the other person and return it to them. Mm -hmm. This really lovely... Uh, symbolic process would happen. So, for instance, if uh, in this training, which I took myself, we would each be practicing these techniques for each other. So the person who was requiring this experience, you would tie a red string or ribbon around their wrist, and the belief was if you tie the red ribbon around their wrist, that that was simultaneously happening to all parts of their soul in the other worlds, and you would be able to then recognize what Mm. belonged to them because it too would have a red string or ribbon around Mm. its wrist. Mm -hmm. And then going into this altered state through Ah. drumming in that work, asking one's power animal to guide you through the various realms, and as you come upon human figures, scanning for the one that actually had the red string around their wrist. Mm-hmm. That's great. To take them back often in the shaman's body and then return to consciousness and and leaning over the, the uh, patient's body and then blow the soul mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. physically back into them. And, and for some people, it was a, a remarkably deeply moving ritual ritual process. Mm -hmm. So what I don't know is um, how objective or subject the experience was. Does this part of the soul really disappear? But I could say that even the symbolism of the process being ritualized seemed to have this powerful effect on people. 
Well, and I have a couple examples actually that I want to share, uh, but that that kind of confirm what you're saying, Joseph. But um, before that, I'm wondering, should we try to define soul? I mean, it seems to me that that's a whole podcast episode, but maybe just for a minute, you know, that a lot of these ancient cultures saw the soul as, I don't know, maybe something like the animating principle, and isn't that interesting there, that word is anima, you know, which means soul in Latin, you know, that which animates, so that you've got the life of the body, but then there's some... um, there's some non-material essence that is really, uh, you know, the aliveness part of you. Yes. And and the belief is that that part maybe wanders or can separate or go somewhere else while you dream or can be ejected mm-hmm. when you sneeze, which is why we say God bless you. <laughs> so anything else we should say about the soul? Oh, I think you're right that it could be uh, a whole podcast. And the other is, of course, uh, this is inherently um, uncapturable, if that's a word, mm. by uh, in language and cognition. But it's the personal part of our um, enlivening spirit. It's it's our life force. It's our you know mm. it's, it has to do with our personality and memories. It's the little spark of the divine mm. uh, that is unique to each one of us that resides within. That's how I think of it, and mm. and of course how it's been written about from time immemorial. I, I've always liked the relationship between the word soul or anima and animate. Mm-hmm. That the soul is some kind of invisible animating force and that when it is alienated from the ego that we lose that feeling of being animated and some people would call it a depression but Jung thought it was more profound than that. Mm-hmm. That the voice becomes less animated. Mm-hmm. There's the body is less animated. The energy mm-hmm. begins um, to recede dramatically. The desires or interests or purposes of a person lose their animation and become kind of lost and low and difficult to, to find. That the energy begins to fall someplace. So, so I want to lean into that, Joseph, because you said it's kind of more profound than a depression. But I've been depressed. And the way you just described it, that that's really, I mean, I, re- I remember, you know, this mm-hmm. particular depression that I had when I was in my late 20s. And it really was like the whole world was black and white. Mm-hmm. And it really was like hard to find energy for things. And I remember, I mean, this was before I uh, had gone to social work school, but I remember learning in social work school about anhedonia. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. I yeah. know what that is because I remember, yeah. I you know, and I can I can <laughs> I have this memory of where I was when I realized God, like I don't I don't even enjoy the things I used to enjoy. Like mm-hmm. nothing brings me pleasure anymore. I was seventy yeah. second <laughs> in Broadway <laughs> when I was thinking about that. I could still see it etched in my mind. But um, just just that total, it was like a loss of life force. It was, yes. I mean, I was yeah. going through the motions, right? And so maybe, maybe there's something 
maybe maybe loss of soul is you just can't even get up and do the things you're supposed to do and I was most definitely getting up and doing the things that I was meant to do but it really was like some part of myself was exiled away it was really it was a different um, self state mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I can remember it really clearly yeah uh, that word anhedonia is, is so descriptive because it's just, I, I don't take pleasure in anything. Right. You it know, means it n- comes from the Greek without pleasure. So yes. it's a big kind of psychiatric, uh, psychobabble word. But but it is it relates very much to loss of soul and light, loss of life force, loss of the animating spirit that says, you know, oh great, you know, I'm going to see a movie tonight or I'm going out to dinner. And instead of it sparking uh, a, a sense of anticipation and pleasure, it's just, I'm just going through the motions. And that flatness, emptiness is so characteristic of what today we're talking about as loss of soul. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that um, just looking at Jung's writing, although subjectively there clearly is a very similar connection that um, Jung writes about it as the ego uh, descending downward, which he called an abasement. So there's mm. a kind of loss of strength, a loss of clarity, mm. um, a dropping down into a hazy place. And then what seems to occur is that the sense of being an individual begins to recede and the collective unconscious begins to push in mm-hmm. and that it is a particularly a loss of, of feeling of the individual mm-hmm. process, the individual mission, the individual uh, teleology. Mm. So while mm. it can also look like this just sense of purposeless exhaustion, mm-hmm. it also can lead to a kind of possession that yeah. the individual seems um, driven without any ability to really explain in a direction that feels deeply alien to what their normal or recognizable values are. Mm. But having been, I was very seriously depressed after I graduated from college as well, my undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's so many ways to describe depression, but yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. in a clinical depression, I felt like Nothing had necessarily invaded me. It's not that I wanted to do or be anything different than I had been, but that all of the all of the gas, all of the capacity, mm-hmm. had been taken away. And I came to feel afterwards that it was being pulled mm. to another level and being invested in a whole yes. other sense of mm. identity that yes. I just had no clue. I was right. living so far away yeah. from anything. That was useful to me. I'm wondering when you began to move out of your depression, Lisa. What what did you sense the purpose of it might have been? You know, that's that's really an interesting question um, because I I think that I had a similar situation that that you had. Is that I eventually came to understand that it was like all that life force was being pulled into the unconscious. You know, the feeling that you have when when you're standing just where the waves break and you can feel the ocean pulling pulling out from under you. It was mm. sort of like that. It was like all the life force just was draining. 
down, but it wasn't absolutely disappearing, like you said. I mean, it, Jung talks about this in volume five, but the libido regresses into the inner world and it activates stuff there. And so when I came out, it, it really was with this incredible flowering of a new interest and new life force. And I mean, you know, it's, it's basically when I went from, you know, thinking I was going to do international humanitarian work to my switching over to become a union analyst. It's like, that's mm-hmm. where the energy needed to go. So mm-hmm. it did eventually mm-hmm. feel purposive, but that day on that street corner and on the Upper West Side, it was, that was, that was not, that was not how it felt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just felt like, God, this is awful. You know, I, I, well, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say, Joseph, and then. Well, I was just staying close to some of Jung's writings. It, yeah. it seems like a, a different experience might be that we have, um, maybe it's even easier to see in our kids, that we have a kid that, um, I don't know, maybe they're an athlete, they enjoy playing in sports, they're doing really well, they're an A student, you really like their friends. And then literally all of a sudden, maybe over the course of a month, your kid suddenly has become really angry, they're isolative, they're not interested in doing their homework, they're dressing oddly and differently. And parents generally have this feeling of alarm. It's like, what has my kid gotten involved in? Yeah, yeah. Or this feeling like, what's influencing my kid? As if something that was wholesome has been pushed away and something else hmm. has now taken its place. And often we instinctively feel like they've fallen in with a bad crowd. Hmm. But often what we think of as a bad crowd is a group of kids that have all fallen into this collective value system like mm. we're all just angry all the time or mm-hmm. we're all just going to smoke weed and, and we're going to just get away from the adults which, who are all horrible. But anytime a group of people decide that they're all going to do something or they have mm-hmm. an attitude like all the adults are idiots and the only way is thus and such or all homework is stupid in that very small way We've lost our kid to this mm. collective belief mm. that this, you know, bunch of kids have bought into, and it's been powerful enough to kind of knock our kids off of what was a more productive center, and now they're getting swept into a kind of echo chamber mm. where, yeah, yeah, it's all like that. It's and, all and, like that. And you would see that, according to Jung, as an example of loss of soul, Joseph? It could be in a, in a way that's not overly remarkable, but a sense where the individual mission of the soul has somehow been pushed aside and some other sense of collective mm-hmm. values have suddenly set themselves up like usurpers in the kingdom, yeah. like yeah. Hamlet's uncle, you know, taking over the, you know, the throne. Um, and Hamlet's actually supposed to be sitting there. And Hamlet can't kind of find a, the energy to kind of stand up for what he believes. That would be a very, very small way. I think Jung's talking about much more dramatic mm-hmm. examples. But he is talking about this ability to hold on to ourselves in the face of powerful forces that are coming at us in the collective You know, I think it might be um, useful here to differentiate between depression 
And uh, Lisa, your your image of being sort of out in the ocean and being pulled by the undertow, of as a kind uh, or or your example, Joseph, of you know kids when they often you know go through puberty and are teenagers and so on, some awful change comes comes in and comes over that is a bit like being swept uh, swept under in some way or swept out. Uh, versus a dissociative process, which is more like parts uh, being split off or separated in, in some way. Uh, that uh, there, there's something that continues to run sort of on automatic pilot, but um, this man named Bennett Braun uh, suggested a really useful acronym uh, that is BASK, B-A-S-K, and it stands for behavior, affect, sensation, and and knowledge, where parts of us are online and parts of us aren't. So um, we can dissociate behavior uh, as in uh, somehow uh, I did that and I don't even remember doing it. Uh, and, and I think we all do that all the time. Uh, truck drivers, for example, talk about white line fever and, you know, you're driving and then all of a sudden you're snapped back into a, a different reality. Um, there, there's feeling and how feeling can get cut off. Uh, this, this terrible thing happened and I can report out on it, but, um, it's as if I'm just reporting on some objective event instead of really feeling it uh, acutely. Um, I'm indifferent to it. Um, sensation can be cut off uh, as as in you know memories where we just don't have that sensation anymore. I can't really relate to it. Um, I can't recall what that felt like. Uh, and that there are places where we blank out knowledge uh, that I just um, I just don't remember that, uh, or I just went into a, a dissociative state. That can be very protective, by the way, in cases of sudden physical trauma, uh, where our automatic pilot takes over, um, but it's too much to process. So those four things, behavior, affect, sensation, and knowledge are, are places where chunks of us uh, can, can get split off, chunks of our soul, chunks of our knowing, chunks of our essence, um, get compartmentalized either short-term or long-term. And I think that relates to loss of soul. You know what's interesting, Deb, is... Um, <laughs> you've, you've really helped me, I think, clarify something. And I, I said before that we have these sort of mythologies that explain distress. And and in our culture, it's possible that we have two main mythologies, which are more or less at odds with one another, actually. And the first is the kind of serotonin hypothesis hmm. uh, that, um, you know, we're, we get depressed or anxious or whatever because of a biochemical imbalance. And, and the other major one would be the trauma hypothesis, which says that if we're feeling depressed or anxious or whatever, it's because we experience trauma. And, and we know that there's, there's like some truth in both of these. You know, there really, there really are kind of chemical things going on in the brain when we're 
depressed and anxious and trauma really can have, you know, incredible consequences for our later mental health. But it's interesting, isn't it, that loss of soul maybe is an overarching metaphor that somehow covers both Mm -hmm. a kind of depressive process and a dissociative process. Yeah. So I'll read a um, a little bit from Jung, who really is trying to help us in in the same way. Um, Let's see here. This is from the volume eight. Certain complexes arise on account of painful or distressing experiences in a person's life, experiences of an emotional nature which leave lasting psychic wounds behind them. A bad experience of this sort often crushes valuable qualities in an individual. All of these produce unconscious complexes of a personal nature. In the ancient world, this would rightly speak of a loss of soul, because certain portions of the psyche have indeed disappeared. Mm -hmm. A great many autonomous complexes arise in this way, but there are others that come from quite a different source. While the first source is easily understood, since it concerns the outer life everyone can see, this other source is obscure and difficult to understand because it has to do with perceptions or impressions of the collective unconscious. Usually the individual tries to rationalize these inner perceptions in terms of external causes, but that does not get to the root of the matter. At bottom there are rational contents of which the individual had never been conscious of before and which he therefore vainly seeks to discover somewhere outside of himself. And in ancient cultures this would be expressed very aptly when they might say that some spirit is interfering with them. And Jung goes on to say, so far as I can judge, these experiences occur either when something so devastating happens to the individual that the whole previous attitude to life breaks down, Mm. or when, for some reason, the contents of the collective unconscious accumulate so much energy that they start influencing the conscious mind, Mm And he goes on and says, in my view, this happens when the life of a large social group or of a nation undergoes such a profound change of a political, social, or religious nature. Such a change always involves an alteration of the psychological attitude. Hmm. So we have these two uh, dimensions of interference with the unique and individual soul. One is, you know, an experience, just as we were saying, something terrible can happen Mm -hmm. to us. And we know this terrible thing has happened, and we feel different after it's happened. Our personality feels altered. And then the one way of thinking about it is, where did I go? Where did the old me go? Mm -hmm. And we have an ego image of how I used to be happy, or I used to like Mm -hmm. thus and such, and now I only have a vague memory of that. And then there's the stranger thing, for instance, this movement, the flat earth movement, which actually exists on YouTube, where (laughs) some people seem so taken by the idea that they're going to prove that the world is indeed flat and this is a ridiculous, uh, outrageous thing that we've been tricked into thinking the earth is round. (laughs) 
you know, see people very sincerely putting this forward. And we have to ask, that is unlikely to have risen out from their recent car crash or get losing their job. Mm -hmm. But something truly strange has okay. come into them and come into a large enough group of people that they actually talk to each other about this. Mm -hmm. They get together for mm -hmm. conventions, flat earth mm -hmm. conventions, to really wow. try to prove this strange but ancient belief is somehow relevant to them. Yeah. And in the same way also interferes with them. Uh, you know, I wonder if that is veering into what... Uh, has been referred to and what Jung refers to as a possession by a spirit. Yes. That, that that is where comes from at that deeper level of the unconscious, the collective level, where there is a belief that can be, you know, just incredibly distorted or weird, and uh, and yet it takes over a group or an individual and something like the Flat Earth Society. Uh, and I've, you know, that there is a belief system that is unshakable uh, by science, by uh, objectivity, by, you know, any other means, uh, because it has possessed them but in some substantial way. But possession is not, I mean, it might be related to loss of soul, but I, I'm thinking that it's sort of a different. I agree. It's a different. Right? It is. It's different. Okay. Um, okay. And and that's the differentiation is between loss of soul, which is what we've been talking about as the where did I go, mm -hmm. or I don't have access to some part of myself. So it could be an overall depressive experience where my energy is just really all down, right. all over, or. I see things and think things, but I don't feel them. And mm -hmm. those are, I think, the two aspects of loss of soul. But then there is a different critter called possession by spirit. Mm -hmm. And that takes over in a more universal way and kind of runs our system. Um, you know, maybe we could analogize it to the difference between um, a computer program versus the underlying hard drive. Mm-hmm. So they both have um, a similar vulnerability, which um, starts with this abasement, mm -hmm. that whether it's um, literally someone's, we'll use the car accident, because um, I've had some clients who've had just terrible physical oh. events happen to them, where there's been such an overwhelming sensory interruption that there is a dissociation, there's a sense that I, I suddenly don't feel real, I, um, I don't know where my body is in space, um, uh, I can't access my feelings. Uh, so there's a way in which we're, we're kind of fallen into the unconscious. But there's other things that can cause an abasement. Uh, people who have been ill for long periods and they're deeply exhausted, mm -hmm. It's very hard to stay alert. It's hard to stay aware if if we're in pain, physical pain all the time. It's incredibly difficult to just stay focused on our own sense of individuality. Also, um, long periods of fear. Mm -hmm. 
So if we think about what people yeah. have been through with COVID, um, mm. the tremendous amount of anxiety and fear and the disruption to the normal sequence of life and how during that time, at least my armchair observation, is groups of people seemed much more vulnerable to taking on collective fantasies. Uh, Dr. Fauci mm. is, is yeah. you know, a, an evil genius who is controlling incredible, powerful forces and we're all in danger. Or, you know, the vaccine is actually, you know, created by some nefarious underworld organization in order to do terrible things to the mm-hmm. human race. Uh, and large groups of people gathering together and reinforcing the idea. But part of the vulnerability to that is the sustained anxiety and the exhaustion of fear Mm -hmm. around it. Did you have more you wanted to say? No, no, no. Okay. I wanted to to pick up on this notion of fear, actually, because, you know, we noted how loss of soul is a metaphor that has wide applicability all around the world in all kinds of different cultures. One of them is the Quechua Indians... And um, they are in, I have to look and see, Peru. Um, so I, for this for this episode, I my homework was I read up on soul loss and soul retrieval in, in this book that I'm sure we all remember from our training, The Discovery of the Unconscious by mm-hmm. Henri Ellenberger. Um, and we, we all had to read this book, and it's, it's a little bit legendary in training circles. But... Um, you know, uh, there's some great examples in here about soul loss and soul retrieval. And, you know, Ellen Berger is using it as a, wh- what What did we used to think about mental distress? And he's obviously going to parlay that into an, uh, kind of a, its analogies in um, modern depth psychotherapies uh, and, and our understanding of the unconscious. But let me read you something that's quoted in here about what the Quechua Indians called susto, which is the Spanish word for fright. And they Hmm. believe that you can lose your soul if you're scared. If you see a snake or you have another frightening experience, it can kind of separate the soul. And I just want to read the treatment for it, if that's okay, because I think it's really interesting, and then perhaps we can talk about the treatment. So... It says, the healing ceremony begins with an operation called the shokma, which is also performed by a corandera, which is a woman, who recites certain invocations while rubbing the patient from head to toe with a mixture of various flowers and leaves and the flower of several kinds of grain. The mixture is then collected and handed over to a male hero, a curioso, who now performs the essential parts of the rites. And curioso sounds like it comes from the same root as curious, which we know comes from the Latin for care. The curioso comes to the patient's house at midnight, wraps the mixture in a piece of the patient's clothing, and prepares him to receive the absent spirit. Hmm. He then leaves the patient, who remains alone in the darkened house, with the door open. He walks away, using the mixture to make a white line along the ground to enable to, to let the soul find its way back. He goes either to the spot where the patient experienced his initial fright 
or to some dreaded place, such as an old grave or the ruin of an Incan fortress. There, using the mixture, he makes the remains of the mixture as a propitiatory sacrifice to the earth. He then solemnly calls the lost soul, repeating his call five times. And then at the end of his invocation, he apparently can kind of hear the soul come. Then he walks back along the white line with the soul following him. He goes upstairs to the sleeper and he lifts the blanket over the patient's feet because that's the place that the soul is going to re-enter and apparently the curioso can hear the soul re-entering. The patient is supposed to be asleep at this point. The patient is supposed to dream that his soul comes back and then when he wakes up in the morning, he's cured. So this person compiled statistics on 176 patients, mostly children or adolescents afflicted with susto, who underwent a medical examination as well as this shamanic treatment, it was found that these patients belonged to two distinct groups. The first consisted of 64 emotionally disturbed individuals suffering from anxiety, depression, hysterical symptoms, and the like. The second group included 112 patients afflicted with physical diseases such as tuberculosis, Hmm. malaria, post-dysentery, colitis, malnutrition, anemia, and so on, further complicated by emotional disturbances. So the remarkable fact is that there were frequently successful outcomes of this healing procedure that I've just described. And the person who gathered these says, I have personally observed many cases of typical or even atypical susto abruptly improve or recover completely after one or two sessions of this healing ceremony such a success achieved by a humble rural curioso or by a peasant woman with their primitive and savage psychotherapy contrasts with the failure of graduated physicians, among them the author of this article in the cure of Susto. Mm-hmm. So highly effective cure. Right. You know, um, it's really very, that's very moving as as a testament to what we can do for one another, what we can do with one another, with time and intention and some training, ritual, visualization. And, uh, of course, it's effective. Uh, the images, the visualization, the ritual, the connection, of, of what a healing process that is, you know, and, and you know, as Jung says over and over again, psyche is real. There yeah. is, there actually really is autonomy of the psyche. We know that. I mean, nobody decides what they're going to dream at night, and we have all mm-hmm. kinds of dreams. Psyche is a living other within us that can be intentionally called up. And, of course, it is a healing. There is healing property and healing potential. And I wonder if in our overly mechanized, seemingly, quote, rational, unquote, world, we've lost touch with how these um, seemingly simple 
uh, processes by seemingly untrained people are mm-hmm. actually very real, very powerful, and and we should be honoring them. Well, and I think that uh, one of the change of values that you're talking about, mm-hmm. Deb, is this um, really serious attitude towards investigating plant medicines. Mm-hmm. That um, something that had been demonized and dismissed yes. and poo-pooed and all of a sudden going back into this ancient wisdom and really asking the question mm-hmm. around, for instance, psilocybin. What, what is it about these remarkable states that people go into that seems to, um, often enough, help them? Mm-hmm. And, and to try to find out what those various chemicals are doing in the brain and how can we use this to best effect. And um, what the research seems to show is that these uh, substances like psilocybin, ayahuasca and others, that their effectiveness depends on how and when and with whom they are used. And that having ritual and a spiritual intention, having care, having a guide, uh, being accompanied and companioned by somebody who's knowledgeable makes a huge difference rather than a, a sort of casual uh, kind of use. So again, the connection with psyche, the connection with soul, the connection you know, with our inner being uh, make, makes a difference in in the kind of altered state that we can access. But I think one way or another, we learn that there's much more to us. And, and one of the things, just going back to the passage that I read that I thought was fascinating, is there was the first group that only had emotional disturbance, and then the second mm-hmm. group had physical things, like real physical things, but also emotional disturbance. And the thing about loss of soul or soul retrieval is it's a wider, broader metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. Like even what you guys were just saying about plant medicine, I mean, yes, it's the substance, but it's not just the substance step, as you were saying. It's the right. whole context right. in which it occurs. And the thing is, when you go to the doctor's office and maybe you do have malnutrition, but you also have uh, real soul wounds because you 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 you're you're living, uh, you know, Maybe maybe your your a parent died or something like that. There's been real hardship somehow. Just to be told, well, here take this multivitamin or whatever the treatment is, it doesn't address the whole thing. So there's something about the richness of the metaphor of soul loss and soul retrieval that seems to address all of us the same way that a plant medicine experience, when it's done with a guide, kind of does the same thing. Yes, there's a physiological component, mm-hmm. and we can make our brains do this different thing by ingesting these substances but but when it's when it's also held in this larger container you know that's what we really hunger for and that Uh is if i dare say that is what depth psychology does you know someone comes to me for depression because they've or you know they're struggling with like a difficult life circumstance and and i know that um that it's that that yes that really difficult life circumstance is there and it's important but i also know that there's this larger context mm-hmm. and when i can you know someone uh, recently kind of um 
brought me a dream and and uh you know was thinking about the dream fairly literally and and I just kind of moved it up to a higher key not not saying that the literal interpretation was wrong but you know that there's also this other way of looking at it which encompasses more I my my impression was that that was a very healing moment for this person mm-hmm. just to be reminded that we are more yes I I like the distinction very much of uh, the whole context, the whole person, and attending uh, to that um, through some of these shamanistic kinds of rituals, let's say, versus the compartmentalization, which goes back to that Basque model. Uh, that a lot of modern medicine has is, I, yeah. you know, you go to the doctor and I have uh, these particular symptoms that have to do with my body as a as a mechanized system, and that there will be this medicine or this procedure for, you know, symptoms relating to the stomach and some other medicine or some other procedure for symptoms relating, let's say, to headaches or sinuses. And that there is a compartmentalization. I'm not at all suggesting that we do without that. I'm very happy when I have a symptom and there's a medication to relieve it. Right. Uh, but it is a different method of healing, a different philosophy of healing uh, from uh, some of these uh, shamanistic practices that have been going on for millennia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ritual and uh, soul retrieval. Well, I think that um, we're all in the same realm, and this is, of course, so central to Jung's work, um, which is, well, what does it mean for us to lose something, mm-hmm. and where does it go when yeah. it's lost? And <laughs> this puts us right in this mm-hmm. essential place that there is conscious and unconscious terrain inside of us. Yeah. A- and if what we have lost is in the unconscious, then seeking it in the unconscious makes perfect sense. Yes. So the mm-hmm. root of the word loss um, means in the proto-Indo-European root means to loosen, to divide, and to cut apart. And, of course, we have that same sense that something that was in our possession we have failed to hold or to keep or to preserve. So when we're talking about the soul, something that the ego used to have a relationship with that was knowable, recognizable, has somehow fallen into the unconscious and fallen so deeply that we're not sure where it is. And... All of the various methods, including, for instance, psilocybin, open the doors to the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as we know, the unconscious is also full of a lot of things. <laughs> so the art, which I think, Deb, you're leaning into, is once the door is open, how do we orient to the unconscious in such a mm-hmm. way that what we have personally lost we might be able to retrieve or become conscious of. Perhaps it's part of our own potential. Perhaps it's a quality of vitality which the body needs in order to restore balance and physical homeostasis. So the unconscious is both the repository and the wellspring 
of, of all kinds of things that are needed and leading to what you had said, Lisa, or were inferring, that one of the places that we retrieve things is in dream work. Mm-hmm. Um, because the ego finally has a way to get a glimpse into the unconscious, which day to day can be mysterious. We might not all want to meditate or know how to open these doors, but every night we go in and this content from the unconscious is presented to us or presents itself. And there's an opportunity to retrieve, engage, to bring into the conscious world something that was lost to Mm -hmm. us. So I think in the loss of soul concept that something has interfered with a state of being that we once had and that we have now been diminished Mm -hmm. in one way or another. I'd I'd like to um, share a a story uh, that's a, a bit dramatic, but I think it can exemplify this subjective experience of something that is lost and something that is returned. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the ways that I conceptualize trauma work these days is that there are seminal moments in our lives where we lose access to a capacity, to a quality of functioning And those qualities and the memory of what it was like to have them fall out of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Part of the healing process is to try to find the memory of how we functioned before the interfering event. That it's not enough to just Mm -hmm. know fully that something happened or even to connect to the feeling states that we may have dissociated. But on the other side of the loss is a capacity Hmm. and that when the capacity is truly re-experienced, we are then able to engage life in a way that we had not been able to for a long time. So uh, I'll tell a personal story, and then uh, if we have time, I'll, I'll share something that um, happened in a psychological group that I have worked with for a very long time. Um, so this past December, um, uh, one of my dogs had died really terribly and tragically, and... Um, it was very, very painful. It was unexpected. It happened in the home. Mm. Um, it, it was it was a bad death. Um, mm. and, and it was just really, really a terrible, devastating experience. And uh, I and my family experienced intense states of distress, pain, and I would really say trauma, at least in, in my experience. And and this feeling of agony uh, companioned me on and on and on for weeks and weeks and weeks and um, uh, writing about it, uh, 
I produced that little solstice uh, poem and put it up on our YouTube channel as an event, as a, a desperate attempt to try to find some kind of archetypal imagery around it, but nothing, nothing really opened up. And then, sitting in the agony, I had what Freud would call a source memory return to me. Hmm. And I remembered being three years old, playing in the front yard, and we lived in a uh, in a, a low-income housing uh, area outside of New York City, and uh, it was certainly pleasant enough. And but I'm outside, and there was really not much to do, and we're often just like digging with spoons in the dirt and making up, you know, stuff to play with as little kids. And I look up, and this English sheepdog is kind of bounding down the sidewalk. And uh, it, I'd never seen a sheepdog. Uh, it, it was it was otherworldly to me at three years mm-hmm. old. So I stand up. It's coming at me with its big tail wagon and its tongue out of its mouth. I just threw my arms open and this this licking pile oh, of joy oh. and fur <laughs> just kind of was embraced me and I embraced it and I had never oh. I have just never experienced that kind of wondrous joy, this kind of apparition of of love. Uh, I don't even have words for it, but that, that <laughs> feeling. It was, uh, it was a true visitation. Mm. And, of course, you know, I, I'm trying to bring the dog into the garden apartment. Uh, my mother is there, and it's a, it's a missing dog to her. Oh, so wow. I'm, like, hanging onto the dog with all my life. Um, I want it. I want us to keep it. Um my mother is a little confused as to what to do. She's willing, actually, at first, like most New Yorkers, she's like, just keep it outside. It'll go away. <laughs> like, it's, someone, it's somebody else's problem. But I wasn't going to let that happen as a three-year-old boy. So there's a little pie plate of water. I'm really engaged with it. Of course, she finds the owner on the tag, calls them up. It's their dog. They're going to pick it up. So we're there for several hours. Uh, and the woman drives up, and she's very relieved, and, you know, she wants to retrieve her dog. I thought I was going to die. Aww. That the unbelievable agony that I experienced uh, having that dog taken away huh. um, Again, of course, rationally, it's her dog. Of course, it should go with her. But I could see the woman's confusion. I I was sobbing Mm. as the dog was being taken off. Mm. And and in that Mm. moment, in that agony, uh, a capacity inside of me was stored away, Mm. a, a receptor site was just plugged up with something because the agony was just too much. And that experience I had this December of 
a similar agony returned me oh. to that moment of of overwhelming pain as a three-year-old. But more importantly, it returned me to who I was before that agony, which is that little boy who could throw his arms out and see something miraculous running towards him and that feeling of <gasps> whatever that's called <laughs> whatever that arm out yeah. inhalation that awe, wonder um, joy and that, that meeting of this ecstatic mm-hmm. um, union that the capacity for that had been gone for 50 somewhat odd years and it had been gone so long that I didn't know I used to be like that Mm -hmm. it's not like everything was cut off but that piece of my soul had just had wandered had Mm -hmm. just gone somewhere else Mm. I've had dogs since then I've loved them but not like that or I've mm-hmm. met life in whatever ways that I have that yeah. was very positive for me, but that totally unobstructed, wondrous, synchronous, um, joyous, throwing open my arms. Yeah. I remembered viscerally what that is and have, in a more subtle way, been able to retain that. since that moment just a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And that happened organically. It wasn't in therapy. But that is a return of soul. Mm -hmm. So the loss of soul can also be thought of as a a moment or a period of time where some natural capacity in ourselves just stops being accessible. Mm-hmm. And often because mm-hmm. it is associated with a pain that is intolerable. And I think Donald Kalchad's work, Trauma and the Soul, yeah. is speaking to this exact process of loss of soul, retrieval of soul, and on the other side of that, a remembering of who I was before that mm-hmm. capacity was lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to describe yes. it. Yeah, and that we have an original wholeness mm. that is accessible, that is that is a potential within us, um, and that's that's an incredible story, Joseph. It's a, it was a, a strange, agonizing gift through, mm-hmm. the, through such loss, mm-hmm. and it was offered to you by the unconscious. You know, the unconscious. Absolutely. The unconscious remembered. The unconscious remembered, yeah. And you know, Finn was just like that English bulldog, wasn't he? Oh, Finn. Silly, fluffy. We all knew Finn. Joyful. (laughs) Yes, leaping across, Mm -hmm. you know, right on top of you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That the echo was enough for that similitude Mm -hmm. to to help me. Yeah. To retrieve the joy. Right. That Finn was, and that mm-hmm. your three-year-old self was, was open right. to. Right. And even 
as an adult, um, I mean, I welcomed Finn into the house, but not, not fully. Oh. Not, yeah, not yeah, in the yeah, way yeah, that yeah, I did yeah, at yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Now that we have another dog in the house, there I have a fuller relationship with the, our surviving dog that I can grant myself a kind mm-hmm. of joyous, mm-hmm. you know, face mm-hmm. right in right in his uh, muzzle, kind <laughs> of unrestrained joy. Um, that really messy kind of joy that little boys can have with dogs. I. I, that would just would not have been possible. Yeah. I wouldn't have remembered yeah. how to do that. So this soul retrieval came about through trauma and pain and suffering, and through being able to hold the current and being agony. Able to sit with that, yeah. Until something came to me, and to believe this again brings us to Jung's brilliance, to believe that the extraordinary suffering that was coming up was more than just the physical loss, but that my psyche was doing something. The inner shaman, you know, the dream maker, mm-hmm. the guide, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is trying to retrieve something that I need to come back mm-hmm. to me in order mm-hmm. to be as as I should be. As open-hearted as you could be. Yeah. And how diminished I had been since then without mm-hmm. knowing it. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, a, a collapsed person the way, the way one can be. As no, I was not at all. With a serious depression. But there are ways in which I think we have all perhaps lost parts of our soul along the way capacities that we should have had that have been closed off. And the metaphor that I find myself using, it's like my soul has all of these USB ports on it <laughs> for certain kinds of experiences what to be an plugged image. into it. I know. <laughs> you know, or taste buds maybe. Um, and and when we have an intolerable experience, it's like somebody just took some beeswax, you know, and just mm-hmm. plugged it yeah, into that yeah, port. Yeah. That's a it's great. still there. Mm-hmm. And if you, and if it turns black, you could believe it doesn't even exist anymore. You know, I, I only have nine ports. I don't have ten. What are you talking about? Hmm. And we don't even know mm-hmm. that part of us is gone. So, so could you tell the story about what happened at your psychological group? Because I think that's another really beautiful example of this. I'm happy to because this represents something of a more curated experience. Mm -hmm. So as I have over the years um, cultivated doing intensive work with small groups and and have over the years, uh, many years ago, I began to do uh, a project inspired by um, Donald Kalshad's trauma work where we were beginning to do some artwork trying to find ways to imagine what might have been lost, what was in the way of that, and even just being able to fantasize who, who might I have been had, had nothing been interrupted. And it's not a photograph, of course. It's, it's based on who we fantasize. 
But even the fantasizing process is a beckoning to the unconscious. We're still asking for help. So as we were working on these evolving art projects, I would have people take turns presenting it to the group or as much that they would want to. And then, if they were open to it, I would work with them in front of the group, which would sometimes involve staging things for people. With this um, one fellow, a guy in his uh, early 40s, really smart, good guy, but suffering from a subtle chronic experience of melancholy and a subtle sense of alienation. Not enough to, to really blight the life, really successful, smart, good relationships, but just something mm-hmm. uncomfortable, something mm-hmm. not fitting well. And, and so, as we began to talk, and going a bit back in time, he began to remember an early childhood experience when he was a toddler and he had become really seriously ill and it was the right decision to bring him to the hospital. And as was the case many years ago, parents were much more trusting. So they kind of dropped their toddler off Mm. at the hospital. Um, Both parents worked. Of course, uh, mom would come back at night and spend some time. But really the the child was kind of handed over to the nursing staff. On a conscious level, as this uh, man had reflected on it, he began to have some memories of the nurses actually delighting in him. And he actually could remember running down the hospital corridors and the nurses playing catch with him and telling him how beautiful his eyes were and really being these lovely mothers you know, substitute mothers. And yet, somewhere lurking around that was this chronic sense of terror mm-hmm. that was unlanguaged, um, un- unworded. I imagine at that time the nurses aren't going to, in- are going- not going to ask him if he's terrified. The parents don't want to think of him that way. And the world was different. I think psychological sensitivity was not as heightened as it is now. So I think the assumption was yeah. kids are adaptive. He's smiling, everything's fine. But at night, he would sometimes have to share a room. Private rooms weren't so easy to have, particularly in rural areas. And during a particular period, there was an ill old man that he was sharing a room with as a little boy. Mm -hmm. And he would hear the labored breathing and and smell the scent of this unwell person and began to Mm -hmm. feel like something was coming after him, that death itself was in a sense coming after him. That's an afterthought. As a child, it wasn't quite that sophisticated. So in psychodrama, what we try to do is 
to get a sense of how to stage things and to invite various members to participate or the person who's having the experience chooses people. So this fellow had chosen another male friend to represent his child self. And as we're playing through this drama, the man who had been in the hospital begins to narrate what it was like to be there at night and to hear this elderly, ill person. The other man who is holding the position of the boy begins to have an overwhelming sense of grief and begins crying hysterically, as often happens. You know, the field, the energetic field of the event Mm -hmm. takes it over. And the man who had the experience is looking at the weeping boy in the room. And he begins to become so upset and says... I know you're crying and I can't feel anything. It's an extraordinary moment. So the actor is holding all the feeling. The man is across the room and begins to feel the distance Mm. between himself and this feeling-natured inner child. He then chooses a woman to play one of the comforting mother figures who tends the actor who's playing the boy. But somehow it doesn't, it still doesn't quite get into him. He begins to relax a little bit, and I'd asked him, where in the room do you need to go in order to place that boy back in yourself. Hmm. And just in that intuitive wisdom, he then migrates over to a corner of the room, puts his face down in the corner, the way an infant might, with his um, pelvis up in the air, kind of rocking. And he begins to narrate for us how he is experiencing his body transforming back into being a toddler. Mm. That he can actually feel the body of the toddler. He begins to rock. And then the agony that the actor was holding begins to appear in this man. He begins to keen Mm. in a way that was so painful for all of us in the group to have to hold is a desire to want to rush over and comfort him. And if we had, we would have acted like his defense system. Mm -hmm. We would have acted like the protector persecutors pulling him away from the intolerable experience. So we're all kind of white-knuckling it as Mm -hmm. we're carrying the defensive structure. He begins to feel and visualize that something is hunting him. That, that what he interprets as death is hunting him. This enormous, amorphous man spirit is hunting mm. him. He's crawling into the corner. The tension is almost unbearable. And it occurs to me to suggest, can you 
let him in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you let him in to you? Which seems like the most non-intuitive thing one would say. Mm-hmm. It seem, would seem like the wrong thing to let what terrifies us back in. Yeah. So to this man's great credit and because he's done a lot of work and trusts the group, he says yes. He experiences this ghost at the moment come into his body. All of a sudden, he shudders. All the affect smooths out. His body relaxes. He stands up and looks at us. He begins to take these enormous breaths. His ribs are uh, moving in this extraordinary full way. And he says several things. It's as if my breath has been returned to me. Mm. I actually feel as though I have forgotten how to breathe. It's as if he was remembering Mm. what it was like not to hold his breath, which he had forgotten for some 40 years. Mm -hmm. The the muscle fibers were acting differently. Again, he looked at all of us, and there was this remarkable aliveness in his eyes, this kind of brilliant clarity. And he said, I've been wearing glasses for many years and I have this feeling that I can actually see you in a way that I couldn't or don't remember being able to and that he felt alive in a way that he could finally remember that before he was the toddler who was brought to the hospital that he had a relationship to the grass in the yard and the cats mm-hmm. and the sunlight that he had lost some capacity for. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that I have done justice to evoke the full story of it, but for those of us that were in the room, we were just awestruck mm-hmm. that, yeah. that something this miraculous was happening in front of us. And then staying in touch with this fellow for quite a while afterwards to then trace how his own ability to feel alive and enlivened Mm -hmm. and confident and Mm -hmm. in his body and to breathe in his life had quite literally been returned to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're... Relating the story of this man uh, and your experience uh, with with your dog Finn uh, takes me to one of the thoughts that a lot of soul has to do with our feeling life, and that actually, uh, you know, for Jung, the essential basis of our personality is affectivity. Uh, and th- 
that our feelings are the central organizing principle. They are closely allied with soul, with anima, with animation, with enlivenment, all the things we, we've been talking about. And that retrieving soul is um, the healing of a disturbance in our ability, our ability to feel. And how how important that is uh, as an aspect, a dimension, and uh, maybe even the heart of what we think of as soul. And with with that, let us turn to a dream. Before we turn to the dream, a word of thanks to all of you who support us so generously and so faithfully uh, as our patrons through Patreon. Uh, if you are a listener and you're enjoying the podcast and we've been able to give you something that matters to you in your life, please go to this com and sign up and support us. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month. It makes a difference to us. This week's dreamer is a woman. She's 30. She's an attorney. And the title of her dream is My Dragon. I was trying to save a younger girl or woman at the start. She was like a little sister. I was working, trying so hard to protect her. I am teaching and nurturing her, defending her. She grew stronger along the way. We were looking for plants for a bouquet, and an evil man viciously and ruthlessly attacked us. I fought back, and I was just as ruthless. I physically throw him out. He lost and was brutally injured. I realized the girl with me was powerful in her own way. She had special abilities to sense things that others did not. We continued and came upon a theater performance in front of a school. We volunteered for roles, but mostly because the roles seemed meant for us. I realized the girl I was caring for could give a voice to those who could not speak for themselves. We realized some people in the school were oppressed and their oppressors had control. We broke something, and an entire wall came down, and wild horses ran everywhere. We climbed the structure of the school that was left to try to get to safety, or maybe to try to jump onto a horse from higher ground. I lost the girl in the struggle to climb higher, and a bull with horns started attacking me. He could climb, too, and the higher I got, the closer he got. I started falling, but I wasn't scared because I knew something was coming to catch me. A creature caught me and started to fly. I intuitively knew this creature was meant for me, and he felt like an old friend. He was scarier, darker than a horse, my dragon. He was black and had spikes everywhere. All of a sudden, I felt less alone. I realized I had been carrying so much, and finally someone was carrying me. 
I rode this animal as he flew. We bonded and I got accustomed to him. We took a break for me to get snacks. I noticed people staring at me and they seemed scared or in awe or in respect. Someone told me my dragon liked chocolate, so I got some for me and some for him. I got on his back and fed him the chocolate. He liked it. And as he ate, I noticed that his body was huge and strong and his head was smaller. I wake up. For context, the dreamer says, I am an attorney who is reconnecting to my creative side, a side of me that has always been strong, but I am just recently allowing to develop as I learn pottery. I grew up as the oldest of seven kids, and my parents were too emotionally immature to care for them, so I was a parent at a young age and consistently worry about them. I've been facing a lot of fears lately and opening myself up to rejection in starting to share my creative work. The main feelings in the dream, she says, are, I felt stressed at first, worried about protecting the girl, focused and hard at work, never a moment's rest, keeping an eye out for danger and not being able to trust the adults who were in leadership roles. Then I feel strength and clarity when I fight back, when I climb. Finally, I feel some level of peace of connection, even curiosity, as I bond with the creature who flies with me on his back. And she adds, for additional context, my relationship with the younger girl is one where I am the stronger and wiser protector who feels responsible for her well-being with those who would hurt her or us or stand in our way. I'm fearless in fighting them down because I know she's worth saving. With the dragon, I feel a connection that is like one I've always known but had not felt before, like meeting an old friend. Hmm. So this is a more complex stream in a way. Um, there's a lot of lot of elements here. Mm-hmm. And I think what what I'll maybe start off with um, is that there's some connection between the evil man who attacks, the bull, and the dragon. And all of these figures are masculine. And when we see the dream ego kind of defeating this, we could call it an anonymous figure, this man that attacks... You know, it's not just like, oh, gay, the ego prevails over the evil unconscious figure. It's more like there's been a kind of transaction. So sometimes in fairy tales, when, when someone dies, it's not really like, it's not really that that element has died. It's more like that whatever that element represented has been absorbed into consciousness. So for example, in Hansel and Gretel, when the witch dies at the end, the kids have integrated that capacity for aggression and darkness and can move about the world in a different way. So we might say that the the evil man with his capacity maybe for aggression, and I want to say for kind of constructive selfishness would be what I suspect that, mm. that image is, has been integrated. Because she's always been a good protector and carer. That's what she did as a child. Mm. But this man represents a different kind of aggression, like the aggression needed to say, no, I, 
I'm not going to go out to dinner with you tonight because I promised myself I was going to, you know, go to the pottery studio and work on my pottery. <laughs> so that kind of constructive selfishness. And, and it proves very powerful. It doesn't, she doesn't, um, she kind of triumphs over it in that scene, but it shows up again later where there's this bull, which again is this very strongly masculine figure. But we can almost imagine that the image of the dragon catching her is this psychological image of her being able to relate to this inner energy in a new way where, yes, mm-hmm. it's strong, yes, it's powerful, yes, it's dangerous, but she is now riding it. So mm-hmm. she has a kind of um, constructive relationship between the ego and that part of the unconscious. Mm. that's a lot. (laughs) It is. And uh, I think you've just done an amazing job of unpacking the storyline in this dream and that the story is is a story of first she has to fight the evil man, uh, you know, then then there's there's the bull, uh, and then finally uh, this bull, uh, dragon who's black and has spikes. So, uh, and yet it's such a great image of riding a dragon is a great image of, of how the ego relates to a dark force of the unconscious that the mm-hmm. ego's in charge. The ego is the rider. Mm-hmm. And, and the, uh, that unconscious force, just as you said, is supporting her and yeah. befriending her. And then, of course, it's just charming, uh, <laughs> that she, she has to get, share her chocolate with him. Yeah. Of, uh, now he's um, almost like a pet, and uh, it's a very, it's a very tender uh, relationship, uh, especially in the the context of her life history, as what we would call a parentified child, a child that had to take on precociously and prematurely uh, the role of caretaking parent, protector, uh, which is very hard uh, in the psyche. And um, I like your reference too, Lisa, to to the phrase of constructive selfishness. Mm -hmm. And I think the dream images it with uh, that first fight against the evil man, that she's ruthless. Mm -hmm. And she says ruthless uh, twice. Uh, and that's a word that I really resonate to because it's not fury. Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, you know, panic driven, uh, you know, anger. It's, there's a coldness and a sensibility and a kind of cognitive uh, quality to ruthless. Mm-hmm. That this is something that has to be done. And I am just confronting something in a way that uh, uh, requires equal and opposite force. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm tracking um, some additional things, and all that you guys have said makes perfect sense. But so I'm I'm stack, stepping back. A bit and noticing that it's when she starts falling seems to be the place where things mm-hmm. change. Yeah, that's nice. So in the first part of the dream, uh, the 
idea of the oppressed and the oppressors, the victim and the perpetrator, is a paradigm that's very mm-hmm. powerful mm-hmm. and very present mm-hmm. in her psyche. It allows her, the ego, to be very heroic and dynamic. Yes. But it also, if that's projected into the outer world, you know, it, it puts the ego in, in a place of just constant hypervigilant anxiety mm-hmm. also. So I think it's, it's wonderful that over the arc of the dream, it seems that the victim-perpetrator paradigm seems to have relaxed. That's great. That's enormous. That's great. It's an really enormous like shift. Yes, I agree. Yeah. It seems that also when the girl disappears, the girl shows up in the ego. Mm-hmm. So at first the ego is caring for the girl who needs to be protected in all these ways. When the girl disappears, then she gets to be the girl who's finally mm-hmm. having somebody carry her. Mm-hmm. So the girl moves in and seems to incarnate in her as she falls. And she has this wonderful experience, which sounds like she did not have growing up, <laughs> that if I fall, something will catch me. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and that's the gift that I think the collective gives her, as it often does if fate has not given us a certain kind of parent or parenting experience. The potential still exists in the archetypal world, so it also makes sense that it would come to her in a magical form mm. rather than a memory. That's perfect. The archetype catches her. Yes. Yep. There is something in the world that will catch you. Yeah, the you transpersonal. Fall. You're caught by the transpersonal. If you, don't, if you don't have, if that's not mediated by like a personal mother, for example, who you experienced as always being there for you. Um, you can you can be caught by the transpersonal at the archetypal level, and that seems to happen here. That's really lovely, Joseph. Sounds like something really good is happening for her. Yeah. yeah. I also, I, I have to just say, you know, we haven't talked about the wild horses, you know, but now I'm going to have a certain Rolling Stone song stuck in my head for the rest of the day. But, <laughs> but the, the idea of these, <clears throat> these, these wild horses, you know, this image of sort of unbridled life urge, this unbridled... Life force, libido, is just going to come and kind of sweep everything down. There's, there's been, um, you know, something's been knocked down or something. It, it calls up the image of the tarot card, the tower, that some old way of being is really just being swept away. Yeah. And and what what's coming online is really it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Chocolate eating dragon. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to This Jungian Life. From our website, thisjungianlife.com, you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, help us produce future episodes by funding us through Patreon, and submit your dreams for possible interpretation on another episode. We'd like to thank our listener who shared a dream for today's show and hope you'll let us know what topics you'd enjoy hearing more about. Until next time, keep living This Jungian Life.